Welcome to The Lit Review, a podcast sparked by a moment of urgency, recognizing mass political education as key for our liberation struggles. Every week, your hosts, Paige May and Monica Trinidad, will chat with people we love and respect about relevant books for the movement. Everything from history to theories around gender to sci-fi and beyond. We know that political study is not accessible for a variety of reasons. The high cost of books, academic jargon, the failures of our underfunded school systems, time barriers, etc. Our hope is that this podcast helps address some of those issues, making critical knowledge more accessible to the masses. Think SparkNotes in podcast form. I'm one of your hosts, Paige May. Thanks for listening. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Lit Review. This is your host for today, Paige May, with Muhammad. Um, can you tell us a little bit about who you are, what do you do, and why? Cool. Well, thanks. Uh, first and foremost, thanks for having us. Well, me. Um, thank you for having me. Um, and again, my name is Muhammad. I'm a youth organizer at the Arab American Action Network. Um, and so I work with young people ages 14 to 19 um, in leadership development, political education, and community-based political campaigns. Um, why I do the work is because uh, the world is a pretty terrible place, and I think that um, we're responsible in our short time on the planet to change it. And so uh, young people have a lot of passion, and young people have a real innate sense of justice that I think um, can be harnessed um, and young people have always played a key role in all of the kind of progressive revolutionary movements that we think about. Um, so that's why I think I do youth organizing work. Um, that's what keeps me coming back anyway. Um, and our young people are currently engaged in a campaign um, fighting against uh, federal, state, and local law enforcement's entrapment, harassment, spying, and just general shittiness as a uh, as it affects the Arab and Muslim communities and connects to other communities that are under attack. So, yeah, we are going to have a link to y'all's work uh, along with this. If you have not heard of AAA and you definitely want to check them out, they're doing incredible organizing. They're someone that I personally in my own work often am looking towards as a role model. Uh, so what's the book we're talking about and why, why did you read it originally? So the book is called Terror Factory by... Trevor Aronson, I think his last name is pronounced. I might be butchering that. Um, and uh, the book is actually about the current FBI functioning and the current process the FBI uses of informants and paid informants um, to create these terror plots um, in the name of like Islamic extremism as posing as Islamic extremists, uh, which they then rope predominantly young men into um, Muslim and non-Muslim, but mostly young Muslim men, uh, Arab, black, and South Asian mostly, um, and then foil these terrorism plots that they themselves created as a way to justify, you know, U.S. foreign policy and their own budget and the work of the FBI and the war on terror and all of these sorts of things. So the reason why I first read it is because uh, it was the first thing I'd ever come across that was as exhaustive um, as it was, I mean, uh, you know, hundreds of pages or 200 pages written about the FBI's use of informants in the current moment in the war on terror uh, was really important, I think. And it's also important to our work as we look at how do we push back against the use of informants, specifically as they affect Arabs and Muslims in the Chicagoland area. 
So can you tell me a little bit more in detail about what what the book talks through specifically? Is it and is it organized like across history? Uh, is it just case by case? Yeah. So I'm going to look at my notes here. Um, so the way that the book is really organized um, is so the author kind of makes an argument about he kind of starts post 9-11 and he says this marks a shift in the way that the FBI functions. And he makes a political historical argument saying that the FBI shifted from being like a domestic police agency to really like a counterterrorism, a domestic counterterrorism agency. Um, this is one of my first kind of political disagreements with the author, just as a side note. Um, it's interesting because he does kind of like pay a little bit of homage to like the Countell Pro era as a historical grounding, um, but doesn't make the jump to say like, we should understand that in terms of like counterinsurgency and counterterrorism and um, that the FBI has a longer history of doing this. It's just that it's kind of shifted and changed um, in the current moment. So sorry, that was a digression of how the book's set up. Can you actually explain what COINTELPRO was just in case folks don't know? Yeah, definitely. Um, and I'm, I'm sure there are many others who could explain it e in even more depth, but in a very short a very short explanation is COINTELPRO stands for Counterintelligence Program, and it was a program that was developed by the FBI in the 60s and 70s specifically to target the people's movements in the United States, uh, the Black Liberation, Chicano Liberation, um, Native American Liberation, and other movements in the U.S. Um, to prevent their success, really, and to maintain uh, order in the United States and prevent radical revolutionary change. Um, and that included the use of informants, uh, the use of spying and harassment and outright murdering people like they did in Chicago with Chairman Fred Hampton. Okay, so sorry, I, I'm glad that you clarified that. Thank you. Uh, so keep going in terms of what the book talks about. So again, it, you know, the book kind of situates itself with the attacks of September 11th, right? Um, and then going forward from there. So he makes an argument about how he believes the FBI shifted and changed, but then he looks at, okay, well, how did it shift and change, right? So he calls this the new FBI. Um, he looks at the growth of the use of informants in the um, and situating us with that, right? The 9-11 attacks have just happened. The apartment is kind of in disarray, so to speak. Um, and the U.S. government is saying we can't allow this to happen again. And they were also anticipating a second attack, right? And so the FBI then invests heavily in um, in resources for domestic spying and informants and all of these sorts of things. So that's where he starts off. Then the book then goes into, well, what does this kind of look like? And there's this really kind of interesting story. There's a man named um, Howard Gilbert, um, who is this like, you know, to be frank, this like loser wannabe, you know, like cop who sits around and watch, like, sh watches shoot him up TV shows and reads like police magazines and hangs outside this like gun shop in Southern Florida. Um, and he comes to the FBI and says, um, there's this young Muslim man, and if you give me the resources, I think I can prove that he wants to get involved in an Al-Qaeda plot. Um, and the FBI agrees, and they actually give him some money to go in and try to entrap this young kid. Um, he's an 18-year-old, I believe. Um, and this is really like the first time the FBI used this tactic. Um, he ends up screwing it up, um, and they bring in this other dude who's like a total piece of shit Lebanese informant um, who then plays like more of a role in the rest of the stories that the author tells um, to kind of close the job. And this dude is like the closer for the FBI. He comes in and fixes these things 
and fixing meaning catching young people in these entrapment cases. Um, so this really marks like the first time the FBI did this with this young man, uh, with this young man. And like the idea was brought up again by this like random white dude named Howard Gilbert, right? Um, and so the book then takes us, that's kind of the introduction to how this idea of informants being used for entrapment cases comes about and then takes us through an actual case of what it looked like materially for this young man. Um, and then the next part that the author goes into is like, well, how are informants actually recruited? Um, and this whole section is called leverage. Uh, and this is a really interesting and important chapter because it gives us a window into how the FBI actually functions um, in terms of how they're recruiting these people. So, you know, mostly money, coercion, um, and specifically coercion around immigration or some sort of criminal justice something, right? There's a catch there. Um, so the FBI comes in and first tells people, we can help you if you help us. And when people refuse, then it becomes, if you don't help us, we'll make your life a living hell. Um, and then the author again points to some specific stories. Maybe I can go into them a little bit later about what that really looks like. Um, so that's like how informants then are recruited, the inner workings of the FBI. The next, the next section, the author kind of like maybe tongue in cheek a little bit calls it super informants. And this is really exploring this idea of there's actually career informants in the FBI now. And these people make hundreds of thousands of dollars, um, off of every case and they're paid bonuses based on indictment and entrapment and successful prosecution of these young people that they're targeting. Uh, oftentimes young people are more often young people. Um, and looks into like the fact that this is an actual career path for people. Um, there are people who, again, are making their entire living being informants and trapping people, kind of wiping their slate clean, moving to another part of the country and repeating the cycle. And he follows one really specific character who keeps reappearing in all of these FBI entrapment cases. Um, Howard Gilbert? No. So okay. Howard Gilbert, uh, actually he screws up his case um, and it's passed on to this like closer, Eli Assad. Um, and Howard Gilbert actually is outed by the FBI as an informant in the court documents, believes that he's going to be killed by Al-Qaeda because this is kind of the world fantasy that he lives in, um, ends up buying a gun illegally, um, opening fire at someone in a public place, uh, gets charged with doing so, ends up with his own kind of like court case and record and actually ends up killing himself. And that's the end of Howard Gilbert, um, the man who the man who really was the brainchild of the FBI took his idea and ran with it. Um, so that's twisted. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, like again, some of this stuff is like, if it didn't actually have real world implications, it would make for like one hell of a, one hell of a book. Right. Um, <laughs> or like a movie. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, um, Right, so these are these super informants, right, as he calls them. The man, his name is actually Shahid Hussein, um, and he comes up a lot in all of these terrorism cases. Um, and then the, the next part that the author does is he delves deeper into who these informants are. Um, and this is his chapter that's called, like, To Catch the Devil, You Have to Go to the Hell, you have to go to hell or something like that. It's, it's some weird saying that, like, the FBI uses internally. Uh, and essentially it's like, they specifically pick people who um, are really, really terrible people. Uh, 
And I don't mean that in terms of the sense of like they're terrible people because they have like drug convictions or immigration violations or have been caught in the criminal justice. Like, no, that's not. That's sort of the argument the author begins to make, which again, I, you know, I digress from his analysis there. I don't think, but what they have actually done, I think is more of an issue as to like how the criminal justice system interacted with them. And so um, one of the most like, really disgusting examples is the first informant that I talked about, this closer, um, Ali Assad. Um, one, of, like, one of the stories that um, the author tells about him is um, he was living in New York with his girlfriend. This is such a fucked up story, I'm sorry. He's living in New York with his girlfriend and um, so he's Lebanese, he's an Arab immigrant. His girlfriend, it's not talked about, but I believe she's American, right? Maybe, um, I don't know what her race is. And um, there's this Arab man who shows up at their door when he's not around and says, oh, I'm a friend of his. And so she lets him in and this man actually ends up raping her. Um, and when he comes, when Ellie comes back, her boyfriend comes back, she tells him what happens and says, I wanna go to the police about this. And he tells his girlfriend, no, let's actually extort him for money instead. And so uses the sexual assault and rape of his girlfriend as a way to like extort money from this person and then takes that money, moves himself to South Florida and then be um, in South Florida becomes this like career informant. Um, so again, like really, really disgusting, disgusting people living really on the fringes of like how we understand human beings to be <laughs> just to be totally frank. Right. And this is just one, one example um, of these kind of like who these people are. Right. Um, and then, you know, again, the author is making the author is very much a mainstream liberal in a lot of ways. And so his argument in this chapter is like, but they're not following the rules. You know, there's like rules to how we should do these things. And these men break all the rules and they're con artists and they're liars and they're convicts. And that's the problem. Um, when, you know, I would argue that the problem is like, again, materially, what have these people done in their lives and who have they harmed? Um, and that's how they get to where they are is really just by harming people. And so it's no big jump that they're willing to become informants yeah. um, for life. Uh, the next part of the book really talks about um, this, this like reoccurring theme in all of these cases in which um, the tape recorders of these informants like go off at certain times or malfunction at certain times when they're entrapping people. And so there'll be entire court transcriptions in which the informant is testifying against a defendant and from memory of an alleged conversation that they had. And these will often be like some of the most pivotal foundational first interactions with the victim that they're entrapping, where they'll say, they'll set the stage of saying, and you know, he wanted to do this or he was on board to carrying out a terror, an act of terrorism or whatever. Um, and like across the time, dozens and dozens and dozens of these cases um, in the transcript, it's like, oh, well, it, it malfunctioned, the wire malfunctioned or the recording device malfunctioned. And so the informant's just gonna speak from memory as a, a conversation that happened three years ago that actually sets the entire stage for the rest of this, um, the rest of this uh, trial. And so again, like a reoccurring theme of really almost like the ridiculousness and the parody of of what these court cases even are, um, and how much power is put in the hands of these of these men who are informants. Um, the the book then kind of then he goes. There's just like a few more pieces 
to it. And it really wraps up at this point where um, the author in this next part, he, he calls it mission accomplished. And this is where he really makes the crux of the argument of the book. Um, and that's like the, the, um, the quote that I pulled out where he talks about like this entire cycle of creating these terrorism plots, convincing and entrapping young people to take part in them, then um, arresting them and putting them on trial for, for taking part in these plots and then making a public show about stopping another terrorism plot on U.S. soil is this cycle that's been created. And it's a self-fulfilling, self-sustaining cycle. Um, one, for the Bureau to like, so that people can have jobs and get money and be paid, right? It's like a $3.1 billion a year budget for the FBI. And most of that money is spent on counterterrorism now. Um, and so it justifies that. And then also kind of my own analysis is the importance of how it justifies U.S. foreign policy as well, of we need to remain vigilant in the Middle East and in the Horn of Africa um, because these people will come here and they'll do these things here if we don't fight them there. Um, and then the author, again, um, ends the book on a story um, that's actually, it was really interesting. It was very like meta, maybe is the right word for this, um, reading this last chapter because it talks about an entrapment case that there's a really, it's not famous, it's famous maybe in like my mind, should be famous, documentary called Terror um, with like the T in parentheses, so like air with the T in front of it, about where they, they actually like, the, the filmmakers followed an FBI informant that's written about in this book as he tries to entrap someone in Philadelphia, this like young white ex-convict um, who has converted to Islam in prison. Um, and this young man, um, I think his, he changed his name to something Akili. Uh, that's his Muslim name. Um, he realizes he's being entrapped as he's being entrapped. And um, one reaches out to these filmmakers who are following the informant that was sent to entrap him at the same time and also reaches out and emails the, um, the author of this book and says, I saw your, this article you wrote in Mother Jones Magazine about the use of informants, and I think I'm being followed by an informant, and they're trying to entrap me. And this like super informant that he writes about in the book was also involved in this case. And he wrote, he wrote to the author, and right after he writes to the author, he actually gets arrested and indicted, not on terrorism, but for like um, going to a gun range, possession of a firearm as a convicted felon. He went to a gun range with a felony conviction, and so the feds charged him on that. Um, so the book kind of ends the story of him there, but this film that I'd seen before I read the book actually tells the whole story of this man. So it was like this very weird, like, oh, wait a minute, this all sounds so familiar, this all sounds so familiar, and then I'm like, oh my God, holy shit, this is the movie Terror, um, just like not told the whole way. So, and that's where the book ends, and he, you know, the author then says like, he kind of ends it on this like pontification of like, what does it mean to be a terrorist, and he said, he makes the argument is he's like, it's not so much that one man's freedom fighter is another man's terrorist. It's more of one man's fool is another man's terrorist. And these people that are being entrapped um, are not ideologically motivated to, you know, violent extremism, quote unquote, are not dedicated to being, you know, members of terrorist organizations. They're entrapped and oftentimes enticed more by money um, than they are by some sort of ideological will to commit violence against the United States or its citizens. Um, and that's where the book really ends. 
So before I ask you what the main takeaways are, I'm wondering if you can talk more about maybe the difference between the super informants or the career informants and regular informants in terms of, uh, do, does he say anything about how many there are, like the numbers behind it? Um, I'm just thinking about how, like as an organizer, right, the, it's almost a joke where we're talking about like ops, right, and how, oh, so-and-so is an informant and anyone that's new, there's this sort of paranoia um, and and this idea of, of how they're able to catch a lot of folks who have cases, right? Um, or that they're like informants to informants, right? But just this idea that like ev everywhere you go, there's lots and lots of informants all over the place. Um, but it sounds like that's different than these career informants, which are much more specialized. So can you talk a little bit more about the scale of that? Yeah, that's definitely, that's actually one of the main, that's one of the like the main lessons of the first chapter, I think. So. This was this was one thing that really surprised me, and um, when I first heard about it, uh, and we actually use it now in our education series with our young people. But like, if I could actually kind of like flip the script a little bit, I want to ask you a question. Um, so, at the height of the Countel Pro era, which we already had talked about, um, how many informants do you think were working for the FBI? If you had to give me a rough number, I would guess five thousand. All right, pretty good guess, right? So, um, in uh, 1975, which involved um, some of like the public investigation that came out of Counter Pro, the FBI admitted that there was 1,500 paid informants with the FBI. That's right. So, right. So, 1,500 paid informants, right? Then, in 1980, there was another public statement. Um, the FBI admitted that there was 2,800 paid informants on the staff. Um, then in like the mid 80s, the FBI really ratcheted up their like organized crime and fight against drugs and all that kind of bullshit, right? Um, and at that point, there were 6,000 paid informants on staff, right? Um, so then in 2004, there was a budget request that was put out by the FBI that specifically mentioned um, a line item for personnel working as informants, right? So that takes us to the current moment. So in the current moment, how many informants do you think there are working for the for the FBI? Um, goodness, I mean, history tells me it's going to be way more than fifteen hundred, right? <laughs> like, it's got to be at least ten times. It. So let's just say ten thousand. Um, okay, so according to the again this FBI budget request, there's fifteen thousand paid informants today. This was in two thousand four, right? So we can only assume that it's grown since then. Um, especially under the current administration, I'm sure that they're pushing to grow it. The, but this number, there's something that's also misleading about this number. And that's that there's 15,000 paid informants that are considered staff, essentially, of the FBI. In addition to that, though, according to FBI documents, they have these people that they call pocket something. I can't remember what the term is. It's a very strange term. So for every one paid informant, there's three unpaid people that are giving them information. So these people are not necessarily on the payroll, but they're people that feed the FBI information, community members, whatever, people that they feel they can go to and get information when they need it. So there's 15,000 people on staff, and then if we say for every one of those, there's three, so 15,000 times three is another 45,000, right? So 45,000 plus that 15,000 takes us to about 60,000 people who are being paid or considered uh, some sort of informants, so 15,000 of which who are paid out of the 60,000 that are considered information gatherers for the FBI in the current moment. 
damn fuck like i think about like our biggest marches that we've had and it's like 2000 <laughs> like and then if you like I, that just blows my mind too because like in terms of how a lot of the times when um when we're talking about uh surveillance right it's an it's with we're talking about the technology that they have and and how when you add that to like the number of people that they have i mean that's just remarkable i mean that's so much information that they must be gathering yeah i'm really my mind is blown right now um so what are some of the other main takeaways that come up in this book um so i think that the the first one is again if we like if we go back if we can like backtrack a little bit in the book at the very beginning where he's making this argument about like the new post 9-11 world right um one one really key thing there the first one is that like the fbi actually develops two things in this moment one is they call it their domestic investigation and operation guideline um and this is like the policy framework for how they're going to surveil the muslim community um and how they're going to gather intelligence in the community one of the things that come out of it um starts with a d and i didn't write it down in my notes i think it's delta project delta or something and this is actually like a community mapping um, program in which they actually map large swaths of Muslim communities. And it's like a predictive policing type model, right? Um, so we see it, of course, across the board, right? Which the author doesn't talk about. Um, but those of us who are organizers and activists see this idea elsewhere, right? So it's like the, the FBI is creating a database so that the FBI could say, I need to find all the Iranians that live in the San Francisco Bay Area. And they would have data that would produce a map that would be able to say, here are the main pockets of the Iranians, here are the businesses that they own, here are the religious institutions and the community institutions that they attend, and they could go from there with their intelligence gathering. So this actually, again, the author doesn't talk about this, but I, I remember specifically this uh, blew up in um, LA uh, a few years ago. It was a while ago, maybe about a decade. Um, where the community was like, wait, holy shit, you're creating like a database of all of us. This is really actually messed up. And the FBI was always like, no, 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 no. It's not, it's not about a database so much. It's just about how do we do our job better, right? So we're, we're not creating a database to track people. We're creating this idea of like, how do we do things better? So in the book, he tells a really interesting story. Um, that I think illustrates it so well about how the FBI talks about their work. So he's talking to one of the men who is um, one of the, he's like a, a high ranking official in the FBI. And he's like, it, this is the best way we can look at it. If we come, we went to an abandoned farm and we knew there had been a murder there. Um, one agent would come in and say, okay, we need to um, split up all of the all of the acres of this farm into smaller pockets and assign a number of agents to eat agent to each pocket so that we could find the victim of this murder right another agent would say oh we need to get helicopters and um, do aerial surveillance of the entire area and be able to narrow it down from there and then send agents to specific pockets and the third agent would say we should check where the vultures are circling on this property because that would mean there would be a dead body there. And so this is what we're trying to do with this mapping. Um, so like one thing is that, you know, they're treating like different immigrant communities as vultures. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, that's one weird thing, right? But the second piece of it then is like, it gets into this mind of like how data um, plays this role for them and how information gathering plays this role of like, this is gonna make us make our work smarter so to speak 
Um, so that was the first really big lesson, I think. The second one really um, sets the stage for how and why the FBI and um, other intelligence agencies function right now. Um, so after 9-11, the, the argument was that um, the FBI was anticipating another attack, right? That there was, another, there was a sleeper cell of Al-Qaeda within the United States and they would strike at any moment. Um, and then as time went on and that didn't happen, they said, well, no, what it's, Al-Qaeda doesn't have the ability to do another attack like this, but what they can do is this franchising model, right? So Al-Qaeda can export their ideology through the internet and through technology and all of these sorts of things, and they can inspire people in the United States who will then be moved to take up action on behalf of Al-Qaeda in coordination with them, perhaps, um, on their behalf, and they call this the lone wolf theory. And this is the theory that the FBI operates on right now. Um, so what that means is then the, the FBI says, we have to catch all of these lone wolves before they strike. We have to preempt them all. And to preempt them all, this means that we have to create these fake terror plots, rope them into it, and then prove that they wanted to do these things so that we can lock them away and make sure that there are no more bad guys on the street. Um, and so this is like the, the way that domestic counterterrorism programs operate now and the theory that they're operating under. Um, so I think that's one of the big, a big, big lesson. It really helps us understand again, like how the system is operating, right? Um, there's, there's another, you know, another part as we transition, I talked about Howard Gilbert already. Um, and that fixer that came in, Eli Assad, one of the first big cases that he successfully won, quote unquote, was called the Liberty Seven case, uh, Liberty City Seven, excuse me. So the Liberty City Seven was, um, they were all black and many of them were Haitian immigrants um, from a very poor part of um, Southern Miami. And um, they, it was this really, really interesting, interesting case. Um, there's actually, Al Jazeera created a documentary called Informants that actually interviews members of the Liberty City Seven. And it's, it was like written and directed by the author of this book. Um, and they also interview some of the informants that he talks about in this book. So again, like, you know, like meta, right? Um, so in the Liberty City 7 case, um, these men were, uh, there was, it was sort of like a social network slash martial arts slash quasi-religious group of like these seven men. Um, and they were all poor, all struggling to survive. And... They also, like, they um, studied Islam, they studied Christianity. Some of them were influenced by, like, the Moorish Science Temple movement. Um, so it was, you know, again, just kind of like these, this, like, meld of ideologies, right? Um, and for whatever reason, they got into the radar of this, this man, Ali Assad. And he decides these people are prime targets for entrapment. And so he goes in and starts to talk to the leader um, I think his name was uh, John Baptiste. Uh, he starts to talk to the leader and starts to say, hey, you know, I can, I can connect you and I can help you and I can get you weapons and I can get you money. And, and the man who was like the head of this social club um, had, let's just say, a tenuous grasp on reality. Um, it was clear that um, in like the recordings, he talks about like how the New World Order uses these tall buildings to like control people's minds. And that's why we need to attack the Sears Tower in Chicago. And 
the um, Empire State Building in New York. And so, like, he talked all of this, like, very kind of, like, nonsensical, we got to do this and bring down the New World Order kind of stuff. So this informant then keeps using that to entice him in and entice him in and entice him in and says, I'll get you $50,000 to carry out an attack. And your responsibility will be to wage, quote, a full ground war against the United States, to which these seven, it's now six men, actually, like, allegedly agree to. Um, and the, like, in the case, the evidence that was used against them is Ali Assad gets them to take an oath of allegiance to Osama bin Laden, which there's actually, like, a video of this. And it's, it's like a fucking terrible comedy. If you watch this stuff, it's ridiculous. Like the oath that he's reading is totally nonsensical. And when you read the transcript in the book, like they have this back and forth that again, it would be comedic if it wasn't actually ruining these people's lives. Um, where like, he's like, I, you know, you have to follow after me. Like I pledge allegiance to the, you know, the, um, I will be subservient to Al Qaeda or something like that. And the man's like, well, I don't really like that term. I want to, what about like the, I'll be affiliated with them. And he's like, no, you have to read it how I said it. And he's like, but I don't want to read it that way. And so they're like, they're having this really strange back and forth. And actually what this was all about, and this happens, you can see this in the interview in this documentary, maybe we can link to it, where all of these men were like, this guy, this, they thought the informant was just this idiot who they could take advantage of, who had all this money. And they were like, this dude was offering us $50,000. We were going to take his money and dip. Um, and, like, he brought us, what, a fucking nonsensical Bin Laden oath? What the hell does that mean? Like, okay, we said whatever. He was supposed to deliver the money, and we were just going to ghost this dude. Um, what they didn't know is that, you know, again, they were, it was like a dangerous game, right? Um, and he was working for the FBI. Um, when, they, when the uh, U.S. government, like, announced this terrorism sting, they, like, raided the warehouse that these men would meet in. There were no weapons. There was no money. There was no plans. There was nothing. And the reporters, when they're like asking the, uh, I believe it was the attorney general at the time, they're like going back and forth and they're like, what did Al-Qaeda have to say about this? And he's like, what do you mean? And, he, and he's like, when they asked for $50,000, what did Al-Qaeda say? And he's like, well, they actually didn't have any contacts with Al-Qaeda. And he's like, oh, okay, well, where did the $50,000 come from? And he's like, well, that came from us. Well, where were the weapons going to come from? Oh, well, that also was going to come from us. And so, I mean, it, it, again, it's like, it's this first big case, but it shows, it really sets the stage of like the plan, the money, the I ideology, all of it came from the FBI. And unfortunately, these men were caught up in it, you know? Um, and that really, again, sets the stage for how the rest of these operations are going to go. Um, and so that's another kind of like big takeaway. Um, and I, don't, I won't talk more about, because there's like so many cases like that, right? But that's really sets the stage. The other part that I think is really important when we look at these cases is often, often, oftentimes, the FBI particularly picks out young men with developmental disabilities, um, mental health needs, and they exploit that to convince them um, of some sort of violent ideology, that it's their responsibility, or that this is what their religion teaches them, or that it'll take them to heaven. Um, and they build year-long relationships with people where they really just like break them down and brainwash them and convince them that this is, this is how the world works. And again, provide them with the means, the money, the ability, the plans, everything. And they're just kind of like, you know, the dupe in the plan that then gets the, the brunt of the terrorism charge. Another big lesson is the stories of um, 
these informants or the people who don't want to be informants. So there was a really, there's a really important and interesting story of um, this young Yemeni man. He was 29 at the time he was put on trial. His name was Tariq Mahenna. Um, and the FBI approached him multiple times wanting him to become an informant. And he actually refused. Um, and they said to him directly, like, we can do this the easy way or we can do this the hard way. The easy way guarantees you'll never see the inside of a jail cell and you'll be able to remain in this country as long as you want. The hard way guarantees that you're going to serve a very long time in prison. And um, again, he refused. He's like, I have no interest in being an informant. So what the FBI actually did is they worked with the U.S. attorney to draft these bogus terrorism charges against him. Um, he was a Yemeni immigrant, and he had traveled to Yemen in 2004, and the FBI claimed that he went to Yemen with the purpose of meeting terrorists and training with al-Qaeda in Yemen, um, and also agreed that he didn't actually do it. So they said he had the intent to do it, um, but never was successful in doing it. Um, so he never actually met any real terrorists, never connected with real terrorists, quote-unquote real terrorists, right? Um, never trained with them, uh, no connection to them, but just happened to be in Yemen, and that was enough evidence based on the FBI's word. Um, the other evidence they used against him was postings um, that he had put online in chat forms and documents that he had translated um, that were like, freely available, floating around, circulating on the internet. Um, and again, so to take a step back, just because I think this is, it's really important to understand how this stuff works. Um, if a Klansman um, reads from Mein Kampf at a rally and calls for the eradication of black people in this country, it's protected as free speech, right? Um, that's just the reality. Uh, so if... A, um, a young Yemeni kid uh, translates a document that talks about jihad um, and not even necessarily like in the context of war or violence or whatever, but uses that language of jihad, which has like, I'm not going to get into like the specific historical religious context of the word, but has its own historical religious context. Um, that could be considered material support to terrorism. Um, and that comes from, it's not in the book, but that comes from a redefinition of what material support to terrorism means that was decided in a Supreme Court case in 2010. Um, and so he was charged with material support to terrorism and attempting to join Al-Qaeda. And he was 29 years old, and he was sentenced to 17 years in prison. And he actually, during his sentencing hearing, he told the judge, he said, um, when I was, he's like, this entire case started because the FBI approached me and said, we can do this the easy way or we can do this the hard way. And he gives this really kind of like long impassioned speech. Um, and uh, the judge wasn't moved by it, of course, um, because he was sentenced to 17 years in prison. So this is, a st this is like, again, an example of what happens to people who refuse to become informants. Um, the FBI specifically uses leverage with immigration customs informant. Uh, immigration Customs Enforcement, <laughs> excuse me, ICE, um, around issues of informants where they can intercede in deportation cases and say this person is a valuable asset to the FBI and should not be deported. So they will come to people and say, you're undocumented, so you can work with us or we can ensure that ICE is at your house tomorrow. Um, so what do you want to do? Uh, and again, you know, uh, this is one way, one big way that they that they are able to recruit informants. Um, 
I feel like I'm like pontificating here. <laughs> but, uh, so the, the, the last piece is like this idea of super informants, um, which you had talked about and like, what's the distinguish between them and kind of these regular informants, right? So there are informants that, for example, um, not that I'm justifying them being informants, but, um, have, uh, criminal pending criminal cases or immigration cases. And the FBI says, you pay a debt to us and we'll make this go away. And they take that and work off their debt, inform, you know, roll over on someone, um, cause real harm and destroy people's lives. It's terrible. Um, and their, but their personal, in Arabic we say, their personal, like, um, shit, what's the word in English? Uh, like, what's like, you know, their interest, their personal interest in doing it is for like this immediate, like, get me out of trouble at the expense of someone else and I don't care, right? Then there's who he calls super informants. These are people who are career informants. So they get paid literally hundreds of thousands of dollars for these cases. And they do a case, get a conviction, move to another place, do a case, get a conviction, move to another place. And they're paid bonuses based on conviction rates. Um, so if you get a successful terrorism conviction, you know, you're going to be able to buy your son a new Audi, which actually happened. Um, so this man uh, that we had talked about before, I had mentioned his name, Shahid Hussein, um, after he entrapped two men um, in Albany, New York, he was paid a large amount of money, which is, of course, never public information, um, and then bought his son a brand new Audi um, with that money, uh, and then went to uh, another part of New York to then entrap another group of people, um, and then went all around the country, and then ended up again in Pittsburgh, and uh, he appears at the last chapter of the book, and then also in that documentary, Terror, as like when, when the man realizes he's being entrapped is when he figures out who this man is and like through Google finds out who this man is and that he's actually a career informant for the FBI. Um, and then I, th so again, I mean, I think that those are, those are really like the, the kind of big takeaways I think that I didn't talk about in the general overview of the book. Um, but those are kind of the big lessons I think. It, it, it doesn't necessarily sound like this book talks through this, um, or at least doesn't talk through this in radical ways, but what's the point? Is it really just to create this illusion of like work is happening, right? To, to, um, to what's the word? Um, sort of affirm the existence of the FBI, or is it about creating an infrastructure that then can be deployed, right? To help repress actual dissent? Like what's the, it feels like a whole lot to just prove that your job is useful or necessary. Right. I'm trying to find my, uh, my quote because I think it talks really well about it. So um, I think it's a both and um, to the point that you just brought up. So one is that like it's cyclical, right? And it's actually kind of like the tail that's wagging the dog. Um, so again, we've talked about it. I talked about the cycle like six times now of like creating these plots to foil them to prove that you're doing something to then justify all of these sorts of things, right? Uh, money and funding. Um, that's one piece, right? Uh, and that can't be ignored, right? All of these agents um, own homes, own cars, uh, have kids. Well, maybe not all of them have kids. Um, whatever kind of family structure, they, they have bills. And they're going to make sure that their bills get paid, right? In a, a similar way to, like, prison guards make sure that their bills get paid. Um, so they have, like, a vested personal interest materially in making the system continue. That being said, that's, that's one kind of maybe minute piece of this small piece of this. I don't know if that's the correct usage of that word. 
Um, so that's one thing. I think that the second piece is that um, the justification of U.S. policy, foreign and domestic, um, and that can't be overstated. Um, Arabs, Muslims, specifically uh, African and South Asian and Arab immigrant Muslims, um, are the face of the war on terror. Um, and so to justify bombings um, all across the African continent and the Middle East and South Asia and continued intervention and the expansion of AFRICOM and a base in Somalia and all of these sorts of things, we need to have a domestic face of the enemy at home. And that's what these cases really serve. Um, again, it's to say that if we do not stop them in Somalia and in Syria and in Yemen and in Pakistan and in Afghanistan and in all these other places, um, we're going to have to deal with them in our backyard. And look, we discovered them here already. Um, and then the third thing, again, I think is the point that you brought up, which is that this infrastructure is useful in a lot of ways. Um, one of the things that we talk about at the AAAN a lot in our organizing work, specifically ar around issues of informants, entrapment, and data gathering, as it, you know, spying, uh, surveillance, um, is that it's useful not only to the FBI in fighting quote unquote terrorism, right, or their counterterrorism policies. Almost all of these policies are translated out of the national security state, so to speak, which is the counterterrorism world, and translated into mass policing and mass incarceration. So our work focuses, for example, on fusion centers, which are these data warehouses right, in, uh, that exist in every state. There's two in the state of Illinois. Um, and they were, they were started to um, gather data to help fight terrorism. And now they're actually hubs of gang databases and fighting domestic terrorism, which is gangs, right? Um, and so our communities are not profiled as gang members, so to speak, right? Um, and so the mass anti-gang violence um, that's inflicted upon primarily black and Latino communities, let's just look at the city, right, by the police, is not targeting um, Arab immigrants and Muslim immigrants, right? It's targeting black and Latino folks. Um, under this guise of like fighting gangs. But the tools and the arming of the police and the, the infrastructure of data gathering and sharing and all that stuff was first implemented under counterterrorism. And so these are very useful, useful tools that are then useful if we're taking it from the framework of the state, right? Um, <laughs> of course. Uh, that can then be translated out um, to really, one, destroy dissent, um, destroy communities who are trying to uprise, right? And, and really just maintain the status quo of the United States. We can get into the theoretical of like who's in power and why and how they maintain it and all that stuff, right? But um, that's for another podcast, I'm sure. <laughs> um, but this is, this is uh, useful tools and a useful infrastructure that can then be used domestically across the board. And I, I think it's it's significant. So today um, is June 16th, I believe. Um, so it's Tupac's birthday. And today uh, Trump had some statement about how, you know, we got to get that cop killer Asada back, right? And she's on the FBI's top 10 yeah. most wanted terrorist list. And there, there was this moment uh, for myself and a lot of folks that I organized with when Trump won of just, you know, he's already uh, said that Black Lives Matter is a terrorist organization. Right. What does that mean, right? And how, um, yeah, I, I, this is, I, I think you've hit on this. I, I would, it might be useful to still ask, but just around, I see a lot of 
connections between what's happening now. Like this has deep roots, and you you started to name that at the beginning, especially I, you know, you, if you were called a communist back in the day, right? That set in motion your possible execution. Um, being and then you have COINTELPRO, which like explicitly says the goal is to neutralize, right? Um, which in terms of war means like blow up, destroy, right, uh, kill, and that's what they absolutely did. Um, and so I think that's just interesting to me. And I, I, I'm wondering what is, I want to know more about that relationship between um, what's going on in terms of like gang profiling and, and all this, but that might be another book to talk through. Um, and so, yeah, but that, that I, I guess, what does this mean then for right now with the organizing that's going on? Um, does it mean like, do we just not trust people, right? Like, what are ways that we can resist this? Yeah, I, I think that that's a, that's a really important, probably the most important point, right, um, of why I chose this book. It's not because I think that he has, that the author necessarily has a great analysis because I think some of his political analysis is really lacking. Um, I mentioned it already. He's a mainstream liberal, right? And so I don't have to explain that to the viewers or the listeners. <laughs> um, I don't have to explain that to the listeners, right? Um, of what that means um, and the limitations of that. Um, but w why this book is important in the current moment, I think, is one is that um, we actually have to understand in a real deep way how the systems of repression in this country function um, so that we don't fall into just like paranoia and, and like, you know, these like fantastical ideas of, you know, they can read our mind through satellites or whatever. Um, I think that there's, you know, there's very real ways that the system functions. There's very real tools that they use. Um, and we have to understand them so that we can understand how it affects us. So, for example, to look specifically at these issues that we talked about around if we were only to look at the entrapment of Muslims and Arabs and South Asians um, in this country um, for our work, what that means is understanding what are the tools that allow this to happen outside of the policy framework, right? So we know their guidelines and we know what their policy is, and, but what are the actual tools that they're using to do this? How are they gathering this data? How is the data being processed? How is the data being shared and where does it go? Um, what role do local, state, federal, county, municipalities play in all of that, right? Um, and so for us, I think that's the key in understanding how do we actually fight back against it is understanding how it functions and then understanding like the actual like how does it actually work how does it go from a piece of paper in a state police officer's hand to a young man in aurora illinois being entrapped by the fbi right um and so for us that's the key right um so we look at our campaign looks at suspicious activity reporting and Ill the illinois fusion centers so suspicious activity reports is this like long form that all levels of law enforcement use when they see something quote unquote suspicious. It gets forwarded on to this data warehouse called Diffusion Center, which is actual like a brick and mortar place. One is in uh, downstate Illinois and one is actually housed at CPD. Um, at, um, I don't, it's called the Chicago Police Counterterrorism something, but I'm not sure like you know, where the office is, you know, like where the desk is. Um, uh, I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, and so this data then is shared out, right? Um, and for us, it means, okay, if this is the pathway that young people and 
our community members that we care about are being funneled into this counterterrorism system, then we need to break that pathway however we can. Um, so for us, it means calling for an end to the use of SARS and uh, calling for the closing of the Illinois Fusion Centers. Um, and again, I, I mean, I don't want to get into like the reform versus revolution argument here, right? Um, ending SARS is not going to like liberate all of us tomorrow. Um, not at all. Uh, but if we have a long vision of liberation and can understand the small steps, um, that I think is, is the key for us. So I think that's one piece, right? In the very narrow, in the very narrow sense. Um, when we start to broaden that, our analysis here at the AAAN then says, okay, we know how it affects our community now, but we also know that these policies don't ever just affect our community. How does it then tie into these other systems at play? Um, and that's when we get into things like, oh, the gang database and the gang registry, which again doesn't target Arabs, right? In, in the large sense of the word, uh, in the large sense of our community. Um, so then we have an understanding of, well, actually destroying their ability to gather and log people as gang members because it's whatever, right? The, the data gathering policies they have also then materially benefits other communities um, in a way that we're not necessarily directly affected by. And then we get into well, what does solidarity really mean, right? Um, so it's, I think, it, maybe I'm going too ethereal here with the question. Um, so a lot of times we start um, in self-interest, and I think that that's good. We start to think about how systems affect us. And then give to have a systemic understanding then can get us into solidarity and what it does it mean to actually work and struggle with other people um, that we, we have like, the same long-term goal, right? But like, we want to destroy data gathering as it affects us, but we also know that it's going to benefit people who are caught up in the gang registry. Um, and it's going to benefit people on the South side whose communities are, are flagged in predictive policing policies, right? In a way that our communities are not flagged. Um, and so, you know, this is again, like kind of the ethereal, right? The theoretical of, of how and why. But to return to the original point of like, why this book and why now is, is really that is, um, understanding the very nuts and bolts of how these systems function allow us to struggle better and struggle smarter and actually win, right? Um, it's not enough for us to just say, like, we want everything to change, right? Or, like, we want racism to end or we want to end racial profiling. That's the call. Our campaign is the campaign to end racial profiling. But what does it mean materially? How, how do we do it? How do we achieve it? And that's where understanding from the flip side of how the system functions can help us then, okay, how do we actually plan to chip away at it and dig away at it? So we're at that time. Um, this was, I learned a lot. Thank you. This was, Thank you. was terrifying, but, <laughs> but very helpful. Um, again, so it is AAA and we'll have the link in the description for this. You should check it out. The campaign uh, against suspicious activity reporting, SARS, you call, what you called it, what, what's the official name of that campaign? Oh, the campaign to end racism. The campaign to end racial, profi racial profiling. Check it out. Support that, please. Um, we're going to close out, as we always do, if you could read a favorite quote or passage uh, just for us to end with. All right, cool. Um, so Congress allocates billions to the FBI to find terrorists and prevent the next attack. The FBI, in turn, focuses thousands of agents and informants on Muslim communities in sting operations that pull easily influenced fringe members of these communities into terrorist plots conceived and financed by the FBI. The Justice Department then labels these targets who have no capacity on their own to commit terrorist acts and no connection to actual terrorists 
as terrorists and includes them in data intended not only to justify how previous dollars were spent, but also to justify the need for future counterterrorism funding. In the end, the tail wags the dog in a continual cycle. another episode of the lit review a podcast where we interview people we love and respect about books for the movement we are your co-hosts monica trinidad and Paige may two chicago-based organizers special shout out to the lit review's very own sponsor the arcus center for social justice leadership out of kalamazoo college keep your eyes and ears open for another episode next monday same time same place want to hear about a specific book Email us at thelitreviewchicago at gmail.com or find us on Facebook. And if you like this episode, give it a shout out on Twitter or Instagram. Our handle is at litreviewshy. Keep reading! Keep reading.